Welcome to Conversations and Connections with HBA Canada, the podcast that gives you access to industry leaders and offers valuable insights for career growth. We will be bringing you monthly episodes that include interviews with influential leaders and HBA members from healthcare and the life sciences, where they will offer career insights and key lessons they've learned. We will also be bringing you discussions highlighting essential career topics like networking, mentorship, finance, and more. Our podcast gives HPA members a chance to learn and grow together in their careers and their personal lives. Be part of the conversation as we aim to achieve our goal of getting more women into leadership roles. So don't delay and join us. Welcome to a special episode of HBA's Conversation and Connections. I am your host, Christina Bellier. In honor of International Women's Day, which focuses on the importance of gender equality in every society, we are thrilled to be bringing you a cross-continental discussion on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives with two DEI experts. This will be an exciting episode as we explore how we are transforming the conversation around diversity and shaping the future. Today, we're joined by two guests. Our first guest is Dr. Grace Lorden, founding director of the Inclusion Initiatives at LSE and associate professor. She is an expert on the determinants of individual success, labor markets, and skill for the future of work and creating inclusive leaders. Dr. Lorden is also an expert advisor to the UK government, sitting on their skills and productivity board as well as a member of the UK government's BEIS Social Mobility Task Force and the Women in Finance Charters Advisory Board. Her academic writings have been published in top international journals, and she's also contributed to the Financial Times and Harvard Business Review. We are so excited to have her join us today to share her insights and experiences with the DEI initiatives. And also joining the conversation is Richard Nesbitt, adjunct professor of the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. With over 35 years of experience in the financial services industry, Mr. Nesbitt is a renowned expert on leadership and innovation in finance, having held executive positions at major financial institutions, including the Toronto Stock Exchange and Chief Operating Officer at CIBC. He's also dedicated advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, and has served on numerous boards and committees focused on these issues. We're excited to have him join today to share his insights on the importance of DEI initiatives and how organizations can create more inclusive and equitable workplace cultures. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Lauren and Mr. Nesbitt, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Christina. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. So before we jump into our questions, something that we've started with in this season of our podcast is we're asking our guests for their why. Let's talk about why you're so passionate about these DEI initiatives. Dr. Lord, if I can call you Grace, that's okay. Yes. Would you like to start? Yeah. So for me specifically, I guess it's about inclusive leadership and thinking about how much money companies spend on DEI annually. And if you could put this under the microscope, companies spend an extraordinary amount of money and there's glacial and zero progress across lots of aspects of DEI. And that itself is a puzzle. So for me, that's my why, figuring out what are the things that actually work and in what context, and hopefully getting encouraged to do more of them and do less of the things that they're actually wasting money on. And Richard, what about you? 
Well, I think that since I retired from full-time work, I really want to help companies create better organizations for the future. And if we continue on with the same practices of the past, that's not going to happen. And where I think companies can really make a difference is through inclusiveness by making you know, the workplace a fair place for everyone and where there's a place for everyone who wants to come in and work hard and succeed. So it really sounds like what you're seeing is companies are willing to spend the money, but they're not necessarily doing the right initiative, perhaps, and they're not maybe putting themselves out there to really foster and create that lasting change. I think it's really weird because if it was any other project that a company was doing, people would focus on return on investment. And for D and I companies, no, people will rightly say it's really hard to measure inclusivity. Yes, it's hard, but there's lots of other outcomes that companies measure that are hard to measure and they're happy with those as an outcome. So for me, it really is a puzzle why we don't insist on return on investment for the money that we're spending on DE. I think what Richard said is super important. The idea about building firms for the future, focusing on bringing diverse voices together is more important in the new economy that we're in at the moment, where in order to get ahead, you need to have an edge. So you need to have people who aren't in an echo chamber, but who are open to sitting with people who think differently to them, who want to be challenged. And I think for kind of this International Women's Day, it's really worth remembering that this isn't about being kind to women. We, we want a workplace that is kind to women. Don't get me wrong, but we're not doing women a favor. This is actually good for business. Absolutely. I love that. Let's jump in. We're going to start with the questions. And as I go through these, make sure you feel free to jump in at any time, you guys. Grace, we're going to start with you. In your book, Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. You discuss the importance of setting achievable goals, which we were just talking about, and taking incre incremental steps towards achieving them. So how can this be applied to the inclusive leadership in the workplace? And what benefits do you see when for companies when taking this approach? So I think for companies, I wouldn't necessarily want them to follow taking small steps. I think companies can be bold when it comes to including women in their workforces. I think that they, given that they're spending money already, they can be bold in the interventions that they try, but they just need to be honest with themselves about whether or not they're working out. So I really put forward this kind of evidence-based approach. I think my book, Think Big, though, was born from speaking at lots of events in corporate companies and talking about what we could actually do to close promotion gaps, close pay gaps between men and women. And when I used to give those talks, very often towards the end of the talks, I would go through the evidence and talk about why men and women are treated differently in the workplace, why it's not as simple as telling women to act differently, and then what we can do about it. And my what we could do about it always talked about firm policies and usually things that human resources needed to do or the CEO needed to do. And if you give talks at these events, very often the audience is mainly women and mainly women who are young to mid-career. So you don't necessarily get very senior people. And I would get comments where people would say, I really enjoyed your talk. The behavioral science bit is absolutely fascinating, but actually, I don't know what to do now. You've basically told me men and women are treated differently in the workplace. They have different pay, they have different promotions. What do I do as an individual? So the idea behind Think Big is actually to give people control, men and women actually, when they feel that they're in an unfair situation, so they don't end up getting stuck there. And for that, I do recommend the small steps approach to figuring it out. And given this is going out in International Women's Day, we're going to talk a lot about what firms can do. I would like to say to anyone listening, there's always things within your control. So even if it feels a little bit unfair, 
in the status quo that you're in at the moment. There's always things that you can actually control, get out there and network, build a good base for moving if you need to, and ultimately take control of your career. Yeah. That's great. And and for anyone listening, I'll have a link to where you can get that book because as you were talking, I was just thinking, okay, I've got to get that in my Kobo so that I can get that. Um, Thank you for the focus, I really appreciate it. <laughs> no, I, it's taking control. And I think that's the biggest thing that sometimes you forget is that it can be scary, but you can do that. So Richard, in your book, Results at the Top, again, audience, I'll make sure to link that so you can get that. You argue that men lose by not including women in the workplace. As a male ally, what motivated you to promote greater gender diversity and equality inclusion in the workplace? And how do you see male allyship playing a role in achieving these goals? There's a whole bunch of parts to that question, but uh, really (laughs) what I observed in my career was that every time I had a balanced team of men and women, in finance, mostly you're working in teams. The balanced team of men and women usually created a much better result or me as a, as the leader than a, an only man, because usually it was only men and that was the alternative, right? So what I found was that that was a point of differentiation I could make, but then what I realized was, wait a minute here, but there's not enough women for me to bring on to these groups at all different levels within the organization. So now I have to find right at the very beginning, I have to work on recruitment. I have to work on getting women through maternity. I have to work on retention. I have to work on promoting women into MD positions. So right across the whole spectrum, I have to start to fix the system, which is really, was really biased against women. And so if you, and so that's a long journey, like that's a 20 year journey. But if you do that, we end up is you end up with better performance as the leader, your organization performs better and you will be promoted as a very forward-looking, successful leader. So the argument in my book is the reason you should advance gender diversity within your organization is because it's in your interest to do it. I'm interested, Richard, about how you think incentives are for what you just described, because I guess a lot of incentives are so short-term in companies now that have shareholders. Is that one of the problems that kind of stops C-suite investing? in bringing women and other underrepresented talent along as much as they should? I think incentives are important, but they're not the primary importance. In other words, money is not everything. And what it comes down to is leadership. So is the leader advocating this or not at providing sponsorship for women and adding senior women to their executive team? That's number one. And number two, are they, have they created an environment where women can advance without barriers? In other words, is the system fair? And so, the, so I think it's the leadership that really provides that. And once you get more women into your executive team or into the leadership, you'll find that you'll naturally hire more women. It's not that hard. Cause and effect is very important. And you've got all these all male teams that are finding it hard to add any women to their organizations, maybe you should start adding at the top, right? And what I found is that incentives do play a role, but that's later in the process. If you don't have a leader, like a CEO, who's advocating this and putting acting in that way by promoting people in that way, it's very hard to use money to incent anything, quite honestly. I always say, if you look at a board, if a board is 90% men, 10% women, What's the senior executive going to think? The right course of events in the environment is 90% men, 10% women. What else are they going to think? So therefore, I'm, I think it really starts with the board. The, the board needs to get its act together and uh, start to become much more diverse. 
And there's no reason for it for them not to be more diverse. Do you, and this is just a thought of this, do you see any sort of shifts right now with the millennial workforce coming of age? Do you see that there's things changing because of that? Or is it still, things are still status quo and not really reaching to those heights that you would think based on the experiences maybe that the different generations have had? I'm a millennial and I would love to take credit for changing society. I really would. But I think the interesting thing is, you know, since time began, as people get older, they change their preferences. And those that don't, they will either adapt to the company, they'll either adapt to the company culture or they'll leave. So those that don't will actually leave. And I think that's, it's quite problematic to look at the tastes and preferences of generations of a particular age and think, okay, when they're in 10 years time, they're organically going to change because as their preferences stand now, it looks like they look much more equality as compared to the past. So I don't buy it's a generation thing. I do buy though that the millennials will have preferences that are different to boomers, for example, as they go along, simply because what's available to them in the workplace is very different. So one real classic example of this is Norway, who were really trying to change how women stayed attached to the labor market, so expanded their maternity leave policy. And what they found when they did that actually was women left in larger numbers as compared to the past. Because of course, what they hadn't pulled through is by expanding the maternity leave policy, they were basically saying the mother is the caregiver and the father is the breadwinner and people were acting to tie. So what they changed to in Sweden have the same now is where mother and father get the same amount of paternity of parental leave. And it doesn't matter whether mum takes it or whether dad ta- takes it. Those leaves don't necessarily affect each other. And I think that matters. And over here in the UK, in London, one of the biggest company cultures that have changed for me is the Royal Bank of Scotland down that west. Under Fred Goodwin, it was this place where it was really hard, actually, I think, for women to thrive. And under Alison Rose, it's absolutely the reverse. And they're one of the first companies to actually say, in, in, to create a policy in exactly what I just described, to say, Dad, when you have a baby, it doesn't matter how much leave mom is taking, you're getting the maximum, just like any woman who's entitled to it. And that's what changes norms. So millenniums are more exposed to those types of policies that are generous to both mom and dad. And because of that, if I'm choosing to hire somebody today, and if there's a man and there's a woman sitting in front of me, and I'm giving them equal time when they're away, for, for when they're having their child, I'm not going to just mechanically choose the man because I'll assume that the woman has lower labor market attachment. So for me, the policies that we expose people to are super powerful. And unsurprisingly, men, just like women, actually want to be with their children when they're young, right? They want to be able to take that time off. They don't necessarily want to be running back to the office. So for me, those mm. policies are a great shift, but they also are what we're contributing to millennials is actually this kind of reaction to policies. And I think if we'd done it sooner, boomers would have reacted just the same. And I just got chills because I remember having a conversation with one of my friends and she said, you know what? I wonder how many jobs that I got passed over because I'm a woman and they thought that I was going to have children. And I hadn't really thought about that. And I was like, the hope would be none. But like you said, with now I think with this policy change, it changes that conversation. And I just, that makes me so happy. And I really hope that we'll see that policy change hit worldwide. Because again, when, you know, when someone says it and you think back and you're like, I hope that wasn't the case, but yeah. I could see you cheering. I could yeah. see you I know people are just listening. Well, there was silent cheering going on with Christina. <laughs> They're really- there really was. And it's, I think 
doing this, I've had more open conversation with my girlfriends. And when you start having these conversations, you start realizing that there was all these conversations that we never had with each other or Richard with men allies and how important that is and important to involve people in those discussions. So I, I hope that this really does open the door. Anyone listening, have these conversations and then look to see what you can do and I know we'll get into it. I'm sure that there's going to be a lot more information. I'm just so excited where this conversation is going. But so getting back into it, Richard, I want to circle back to you, I guess now, and especially because I had said men allies. So what are some specific actions that men can take to really be effective allies in promoting greater gender equality and inclusion in the workplace? Depends what level you're at. As I became more senior, I was able to get at the root cause of some of the problems, for example, uh, recruitment policies. Like if you send only men on your recruitment team to the university and you send them only to universities that are 90% men, 10% women, you're pretty well going to end up with a whole bunch of men. And I, I remember a case study, a real life one, where they actually the entertainment they had to, re to attract the students at the business school to come was they actually had the Stanley Cup there and they were playing the hockey game from that night. So that was the way they attracted people to come. And I was told stories by some of the, by the HR person who actually was a female. She said that women would come to the door, they'd look inside, and then they turn around and leave. So they never actually went in the room. It was so un unfriendly, right? So you don't need to do this stuff that way. You can clean that up. We cleaned that up right away. I made a policy. No, from now on, recruitment teams must be gender diverse and we have to be very sensitive to the way we're attracting people. And by the way, why are we going to universities that are 90% men, 10% women? Why are we going places that have a better gender balance to start with? And so you can get at a lot of what I call the plumbing of the problem. Let's take a look at your maternity policies. That, that has gotten better over time, but it used to be quite archaic 25 years ago. And you were really penalized for taking time off and you didn't get a lot of time off either. And then men never took time off, right? So you can fix that as well. And then you can fix this. Oh, I remember getting the lists of the potential MD candidates, the managing director promotions, and they were fundamentally mostly men. And I actually created an edict. I said, okay, going forward, you may only submit any lists that are gender balanced. And if you have if you've done such a bad job, if you guys in your leadership of your organizations have done such a bad job of bringing women through the pipeline and you only have one woman that's available, then you can have only one man, right? And by the way, that's not what happens. They fix the problem very quickly because they want to have more men on that list, right? But then they realize that ain't going past me without more women on that list. And it can't be it can't be made up either. But so those are some of the things you can do. The other thing to do is what I talked about earlier, which is like, why don't you hire some women yourself on mm -hmm. your senior team? And why do you promote some women into senior positions and help sponsor them and mentor them, make sure that they succeed in those positions? You can do a lot in an individual. I actually had a question maybe for both. I remember I'd worked in an organization and the entire executive suite were men and they'd finally put one woman on and on the executive committee and so she would sit with them and at one point i remember saying to her you've got to really make a presence you're the only woman on the, the executive committee and she said that's so much pressure i don't even i don't even know what to do and i never really thought about that either so do you think that there for any of those women in those positions do you have any advice on how to deal with that did you find you had any sort of women that were very outcounted or there, was there anything that you did to make them feel more 
I don't want to say welcome, but maybe. Welcome. Yeah, the leader, you'd rather have at least 30% minimum on your team. So three out of 10 or whatever it is, yeah. minimum, because any single person can be outnumbered, right? Imagine it was nine, nine women and one man, that man would feel outnumbered as well. But the leader can do a lot in the short term by making sure that voice is listened to, ask for that person to speak, what do you think, and can ensure that there's not other, the number of times you have to say, okay, we're, that's inappropriate conversation. We're not going to talk about that. If you're in a group of men, if you believe me, it still goes on. And this gets back to that millennial thing. Human nature has not changed. Okay. Like human nature hasn't changed in 5,000 years. People are still people and they will still behave in inappropriate ways. But the leader can really change that atmosphere for that single woman until they get time to add two, three, four, five more in, at the senior leadership table. And they can't just stop at one either. The other problem, of course, is you have is that the female participants on the executive team tend to be in the non-revenue producing side. And that will always be a problem for, for advancing women throughout the organization, especially because the revenue producing sides are where you think you get your next generation of leaders from usually not from legal or HR. How do you sort that out? We, again, you start at the beginning. By the way, I have seen situations where, uh, and it's, I would call it the Margaret Thatcher component, which is Margaret Thatcher had a cabinet of only men, but they were terrified of her. And, and so she, she outmanned the men, right? And so I have seen that in real life as well, where this young woman needs no help from me, but that's probably the exception rather than the rule. So I do think they right. need support. I, I think that kind of reminds me of, I guess what essentially what we're talking about is tokenism. And to everyone is a different individual. So you will get a token who has sharp bezels, who is able to fight their way to be heard within the meeting. It is exhausting though, if you're that person, right? If you always have to be getting into an argument in order to get heard particularly if you're making sensible conclusions. So I always admire women who do that, who are able to hold their own with, within a room, really push for progress, ultimately get to the kind of tipping point that Ricky just described, where we have 30% plus women who are in positions, ideally in these executive, ex executive income generating positions. And of course, that, that pushes out into other areas of inclusiveness, which I think are even more difficult to address, say, for example, African-American, African-Canadian, people of other races, or the single person in that meeting, always the single person of that race. How do you deal with that? At least with dealing with gender diversity, 50% of the population, women, so you have a population that you should be drawing on. But what I would say is the same things apply. You should be looking to have greater gender balance, greater racial balance, greater geographic balance to get better a better diverse set of opinions when you're working with your team. But think about that. I always think about that now, like how must that be for that person sitting in the room for the, for their whole career, they're, own, they're the only person of that background sitting in the meeting. But I think Richard, the reason that we've ended up in this status quo is that companies have formed themselves around teams that tend towards echo chambers and conformity and people like themselves. And if we have inclusive leaders, whatever your background is, whatever your demographics, wherever you come from, you would feel included. And I think part of it is really kind of refiguring what we mean when we have a leader who's sitting at the table. It's not just about making sure 
different voices are heard is that they're actually actively listening to people who have these different points of views to themselves. And then we get the beauty for diversity. And I, I think the interesting thing about an inclusive leader is that they can be any gender, they can be, have any background, they can be any age. I'm a proponent of having younger people on board. So thinking about generational diversity as well, it stops us them thinking about that we're the odd one out in a room if we find ourselves in that situation. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. And that really goes nicely because we're talking about the DEI and then the impact on that. And Grace, I know in your academic writings and research, you explored the link between diversity and innovation, and you found that greater diversity can lead to greater innovation and creativity. So with that in mind, how can organizations foster a culture of innovation and creativity through these DEI initiatives? So I will just correct you slightly when you have diversity you don't necessarily get more creative and more innovative outcomes and actually it can have a negative impact on productivity however you define it and that's because if you can imagine yourself being a diverse person so imagine you're a woman and the only woman who's in a, in a team of all men it can be very hard to get your voice heard as we've already as we've already mentioned if you're getting into arguments the conflict can lead to negative outcomes and you might rationally actually choose to either conform or detach and sit there and not necessarily say anything, because why would you why would you contribute in that scenario? So being a woman then or having a picture of diversity when the leader isn't listening isn't isn't going to get you the increased creativity and increased innovation that you just described. It's the eye, it's the inclusion gets there. And this isn't inclusion that just makes everyone feel that they get to talk about what they did over the weekend. Having these like collegial relationships at work is important. But this is where people feel psychologically safe that they're able to be challenged. And I do this all the time to my executives. And, I, and maybe it's slightly true, but when I'm in the room with them, on one side of the room, I give them a piece of paper and I'll ask them to write down, can you pick somebody out in your work who really needs to change their mind about something and tell me what it is? And you can pick more than one person if you want. And on the other side of the room, I'll say, can you write down when you last changed your mind in work about something fundamental? And on this side of the room, I get so many amazing answers about how colleagues should change their mind from everything from the mundane up to these kind of big things that they're doing. And then for the people themselves, they can't necessarily think about anything that they should change their mind on or change their actions towards or when they've changed their mind in the past. And I think as human beings, we don't tend to be inclusive leaders. We say we want to have diverse people around us, but we want them fundamentally to agree with us. And that's the challenge for women in the workplace. I've met woman after woman who's been extraordinarily talented, who's, who have admitted to conforming at different types of their career in order just to get along. And that's not good for business. So if I had a one, that's what I would change. I would change leaders to really actually be willing to change their minds. And if someone challenges them today, that they actually feel quite good about it. They feel, yes, this is wonderful. People are taking apart my ideas. Now we might actually get somewhere where we're trying to go with this kind of creative process or this innovative process. And do you think sometimes maybe it's when people are challenged, is that defense mechanism? Because we, we still haven't, like you said, created that space where it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to be challenged because then you're going to get a better outcome. It's ego. This is the classic fight with ego. And as we shift from command and control type leadership where ego was held off to right. a leadership where the person actually can't be an expert in everything, trends are moving too fast, technology is moving too fast, and they really need to leverage diverse talent in their team, changing what your ego responds to is really important. So you, a lot of times when you're working in, in companies that are trying to create or innovate, you're trying to change the ego of the leader to care about, it's about the team outcome. So actually the fact that person A is challenging me in the room 
is really good for me. And the fact that person B is challenging me in the room is really good for me. And that your ego settles down, that you think that's actually a good thing. And that shift is really, is really difficult. And I often say to leaders, if you're challenged and you don't understand that you don't feel you can be curious, go for coffee. Just say, look, let's take a break. This is an idea that I need to mull over and I'll come back. So then the kind of, maybe the emotions are in second, you come back into the room and say, okay, can you tell me about the cost benefits and the risk of your idea? Now I'm, now I have some caffeine when really you've put your ego at the door. Now I have my caffeine. I'm able to have that conversation. And this is true of men and women, by the way, that none of mm. us are our most amazing idea to be channeled. So the kind of the check on the ego is the thing I hope we can shift in leadership in the future. Absolutely. That's a great takeaway to just say, yeah, take a coffee break for men or women women, and just walk away, think it over. So I I love that. I wrote that down. I was like, that is definitely applicable. You know, I have a question here and it it talks about, I want to say greater social mobility and reducing inequality. But for me and for anyone else listening, I wanted to start with, can you explain that idea of what social mobility is and then how that applies to reducing inequality? Because I think then with that better understanding, I really wanted to dig into the next steps that organizations could take to ensure the DEI initiatives are effectively promoting these goals. So maybe take a step back and then we can go forward. Social mobility is actually really hard to define and academics fight over this. So if you're in the UK, they define it based on class pretty much, which is linked to the parents' job and their occupation and their education. So think about occupation and ed- education. And if you're in the US, it's usually purely income based. And I think Canada is the same. So as you move around the world, how we think about social mobility differs. But I think we can all agree it means that somebody is moving from a particular state to a better state in terms of income or status. So it's it's going to be one or the other. And I think a lot of companies are really thinking seriously about this because if we're, we're t- it's International Women's Day. So one of, one of the kind of findings that was really startling that came out about 10 years ago were that even though we were getting more women on boards and more women into most senior positions, very often they were the daughter of the previous CEO rather than the son. So we weren't necessarily getting diversity in the way that you might have actually been expected, surely by having, ha- having that woman on the board. People started thinking about intersectionality, which is fundamentally really important. If you're a woman who comes from a lower socioeconomic background, however you define it, whether it's class or income, You've somewhere in the order of two to three times less income as compared to a woman who doesn't come from it, even if you're in the same position. This kind of the, this double and triple penalty on social class and movements on income is really prominent. And I think the most interesting sector tackling social mobility for me are actually the tech firms. So when all the big tech firms now say, look, universities are doing a really terrible job at promoting social mobility, we're going to test people ourselves. So rather than ask for a signal of having a first class honours or a distinction from a prestigious Ivy League university, we're going to come up with tests that put people through the mill when it comes to programming, when it put people through the mill when it comes to other types of tasks, including soft skills. And we're going to basically take a risk on people who might never have had a university of education or who've gone to a university who we wouldn't otherwise hire from. And so far as I know, there's been a lot of success of hiring under that. I mean, Meta is the most interesting one who uses their gaming platforms, Oculus, and also on their Instagram and Facebook. And if people are actually playing the games with people of all walks of life do, regardless of, of your income, they've worked out some algorithm that tells you whether you'll be good in some of these kind of coding careers. And they'll ask people if they want to apply and go through these assessments. Social mobility is extraordinarily important. It's one of the aspects of intersectionality that isn't protected in most countries, so it tends to be neglected. 
But I think slowly companies are realizing, actually, if we're not bringing along people who come from all different types of backgrounds, we're probably not getting those diverse perspectives, particularly in companies like pharmaceutical companies, retail banking, the tech sector, where customers are actually diverse. Customers come from all aspects of the income distribution. Yeah, and I did a facepalm, guys, because I did a couple interviews with people in pharmaceutical. And I kept saying, like, so is the rubric going to change? The way that you hire sales rep, it's got to change. The soft skills that you need have changed drastically and will keep changing because of the, I guess we'll call it the new normal in quotations. And they said, no, it's still going to be the way that it was. I thought, oh, golly. There's so many innovations in hiring. I Interview stage is the possibly the biggest waste of time because if you get eight different people into an interview, who you actually select doesn't determine what their success would be. There's zero correlation with it. So all the screen that goes before has been shown to have some positive probability with their success within the company. The interview stage, I do think if you've got a monkey to throw a dart against a dartboard and pick the person, you probably would end up with equal success rates to having all those expensive people sitting around and having conversations. So the traditional interview makes me very depressed. And I love companies moving away. And if ego stops them moving away from the traditional interview, at least having task-based assessments or other types of assessments to getting candidates looked at by other people and in other, in other directions as compared to before. Yeah. And Richard, how, I guess finances, did you see any of that changing? And especially with the social mobility, how did that sort of affect the industry that you were in? It has changed a lot over the last 30 years. There's no, no mm-hmm. question about it. There's a lot more room and a, there's a strong desire to advance women and other groups within finance and banking. Of course, banking is, banks are mostly women, but the leadership is mostly men, right? In banks, 60% of the employees of the bank are women usually, but they're in the lower paid jobs and, and the, and the, and the retail area. But it has changed a lot. It's changed for the better. It has to continue to change a lot more. And I think that, I don't know what you re- see. Again, here's where I come back to, I don't know what you replace the interview with because I, What I always advise my, I do a lot of mentoring for MBA students. And what I always advise the MBA students is, and you're getting a job in Canada, they have to know you and they have to like you because if they don't know you, they're not going to hire you. And if they don't like you, they're not going to hire you. So how do you know and like a person if you've never met them? If you do it over LinkedIn or by the way, I don't sign up for LinkedIn or any of this other stuff. Like I try to maintain a zero footprint on all that kind of stuff, but I can get away with that, but I don't understand. So I don't know what you replace that with, but it does, it does potentially lead to bias. If the interviewers are not questioning themselves, are we being biased in the way we're making decisions? So, so I don't know what, how you replace that, but I worry, I worry that unless we figure out the right way to go about replacing that, we end up hiring people we don't like and don't know. But I think we have to be careful when we're hiring for people that we like, because there's probably two reasons why we like them. One, their competencies, and two, because they make us laugh or they make us feel comfortable. And we right. shouldn't be hiring based on the second. It has to be yeah. the first. It has to be this kind of... Uh, I can give you a good example, though. I remember we hired, we were interviewing somebody who wanted to come and work in the training room. And so we sat down with them and said, and why would you like to come and work with us? And the answer was they were in yacht racing and they felt they could get a lot of time off to go yacht racing if they came and worked for our organization. And, but that was nowhere on his resume. I didn't see that on his resume, but we found that out because we interviewed him. Uh, and then we said, no, thank you very much. 
because that's we're not hiring you so that we can give you a salary so you can go yacht racing. And so I don't know. Okay, so how do you deal with that? Right, because that that came out in the interview, right? Grace, how do you deal with that? I think there are different ways, but I think what you describe is really linked to citizenship and competency, which I'm really happy about. I worry, though, that a lot of people might choose to hire that gentleman if they like yachting, for example. So if if that's their hobby. And in, in a sense, I think one of the troubles that we have when it comes to really embracing diversity and being challenged at work is that we're obsessed with the idea that we might have our best friendships and our best times when we're in the, when we're in the workplace. So disentangling the affinity bias at the interviews is super important. And interestingly, some things that have been shown to work are getting a lot more people to look at the candidate and to grade them. So virtual interviews, for example, that would allow the panel to be bigger, fixed questions, which most people try. And there's even evidence that if you grade the person based on their likability, you're much more likely to hire a diverse candidate because the fact that you force yourself to grade them based on how much you like them personally and are drawn to them makes salient to you as an individual just how much they're leaning on their likability and ignoring lots of other competencies that they have. So that's a controversial one. I've floated it to a few companies and they do tend to make a face and probably consult their legal department. But the evidence really does suggest that the saliency of how much we let affinity drive our choices might be enough to make us look in another direction. But I, for me, as somebody who's managed to hire a pretty diverse team, I think it's interesting that the now diverse backgrounds doesn't actually, doesn't stop somebody being included because in, in essence, everyone comes from a different background. Everyone comes from a different place. There's a variety of ages. So once the competency is there, things seem to work incredibly well. And I don't worry about likability. Like people might if they had a kind of a closed echo chamber type culture. Interesting. And I come from a farm background. A dirt poor farm background, I always say. I don't golf. I will golf if I'm forced to, but I don't really like it. And I don't drink at all. Those those ideas that you had to golf and you had to drink in order to become part of the old boys network to move ahead it didn't seem to affect me one way or the other, quite honestly. And but by the way, those pastimes of drinking a lot, playing golf a lot, use up a lot of time. They use up a lot of time that you can spend on your job. And I think that's the key if you're having an interview is disentangling asking about things that have to do with the job from those that don't, which seems obvious, but actually a lot of interviews do slip into culture and hobbies and mm-hmm. seek affinity. And human resources departments really trying to move away from that. And there are some gaming of the system still going on in companies for sure, but I do think it's getting better. Yeah. Something that was interesting, because when I got the role that I have now, I actually had, it was like five interviews. One of them actually had three or four people. And so I thought that was interesting because I had done RFPs And I wondered if in the background, so when you're saying having different people in on that interview, would you then create a rubric so that everyone's sort of trying to get through their sort of competencies and make sure this person has what they need? So is that something that that you sort of companies can work towards or how would that work? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to start with the job description. So a really good job description that says what are the skills and abilities that the person needs to have and what's the activities that they're going to be doing. And then that links to the interview. So what questions are we going to ask them that will allow them to showcase these core competencies? Or even better, what evidence does the person have from their past that might allow us to showcase these core competencies? So specific to inclusive leadership, I'm not really interested in a person, regardless of their gender, telling me that they're an inclusive leader. 
I would much rather actually look in their past and see what were the types of people that they brought on in their previous company, for example. So we people who are overconfident can tell you a really good story about how much of an inclusive leader that they are. But if you put them under the microscope, it might actually it might actually turn around. So I, I think that's the I think that's the first thing. But I think the second thing then is once you're in the interview, really sticking to those questions. So really sticking to what are the skills and abilities that the person has and what are the activities that they're actually going to be doing. And then you're, you're setting yourself up for fairness and you're setting yourself up for outcomes that might actually end up being much better and closer to the meritocracy as compared to if you just had three questions that weren't linked to the role that the person would be doing. I think what I'm hearing so far is it really just taking that step saying, let's change the way we're doing things. So even maybe going to your HR, let's talk about how we're hiring people, especially Richard too, being such a great male ally. Your impact is probably so much larger than you even know for some, for just saying, let's change up the way we're doing things, guys. Bring me the same amount of women's name as men's name. So I think it's just change really does start with small with one person and I think it's amazing the insights that you both are bringing. So looking at the time, making sure we want to get these last couple insights in from both of you, we'll start with for those organizations and even individuals looking to improve the DEI initiatives to create some real change and impact, what ways can they measure success of their initiatives? We talked about at the beginning and what metrics can they use to actually show that ROI and that success? They should be measuring at all levels within the organization, the change over time of individuals in those positions and how diverse they are. They can't do it just at the top and they shouldn't be doing it just at the intake level because those are a completely inaccurate picture of your diversity. You need to measure every little level. And then by the way, what I advocate is that should be published. So you should publish that like in your annual information form because there's nothing better than having that out in the public realm to force people to actually take it seriously and do something about it. Now, I will note to you, very few people publish this information, right? You can't find this information. You can, they'll talk to you about how many people are at this, on the board or the senior executive level. And they'll talk, they'll sometimes talk about, well, we only take in 50-50 men and women from universities. They don't tell you what's going on in the middle. And the middle is where all the action is, right? That's where it's all happening. And that dictates the future of diversity within that organization. And so what I'd like to see is people reporting that at all levels, because I think the reporting of it will change behavior. What about you, Grace? Yeah, I first thing to say that I agree with Richard, and I, I think scrutinizing the middle is really important, particularly for women. The missing middle is a stylized fact across every sector that I've ever looked at, including pharmaceutical industry, finance and technology, where this is where we lose women talent, not because they go home to look after their children, but because they opt elsewhere, because they start getting treated unfairly around that kind of middle part of their career. I think for me, I'll just go in a different direction and really push for leaders being trained to be inclusive leaders and really paying attention to themselves about what are the dynamics like around their table, so who's speaking in meetings, who's getting actively listened to, who are, whose ideas are they going with the most, all the way through to who are they putting forward for promotions and pay reviews and making sure it's not skewed between one type of person and another. I think in the middle-level managers in particular to take which is trade at all. If we can train them enough mid-level managers to be inclusive leaders and see what benefits they're getting from allowing diversity to influence their product direction and to influence these other choices that they're actually making, we can then move towards a place where we're not necessarily seeing women leave in the middle of the organization and we're seeing much more diverse talent streams actually make it true. 
And I really worry about C-suites and organizations and academia is really known for this as well, where they talk about the pipeline, there's pipeline problems. We're going to focus on this kind of young people who are actually coming through. Firstly, because it makes this really weird pyramid where you have all men at the top and all women at the bottom, which is a very unusual dynamic. But secondly, for a very long time, that missing middle has been a prominent feature. So you can have 50-50 in the early days, but who are you actually bringing through um, into the end of the story? And laterally hiring later on in people's careers, I think is a really good way that companies can get a competitive edge where they can say, actually, okay, we're now going to really strategically hire in clusters, people who are diverse, so maybe larger numbers of women than we normally would hire. Richard has already said, you know, if you have enough kind of representation of good women, of high merit at the top of the organization that they promote other women. And as a strategy, yes, it doesn't change the industry norms, but as a strategy for one company, it can really bear fruit in changing their diversity. So in this kind of winner takes all economy, I would advocate for that. And the fact that we're not seeing companies do that does suggest that the company level, people still aren't convinced that diversity is actually good for business. I think when you see one or two companies who really make that change, where they take large numbers of women in order to change their diversity, large numbers of underrepresented top talent in to change, not just their profile at the top, but all through the organization, then we know that company really cares about diversity. So really, it's we're still really not in 2023 seeing a lot of companies. Would that be the consensus that there's just not a lot of companies that are really promoting this DE&I? No, I think it's moving in the positive direction all the time. Good. I think it may, it may come and go as you have things like pandemics and receptions, things like that. But I do think we are way further ahead than we were 20, 30 years ago, in, in my view. Grace, I don't, what do you think? I think it's a priority, but I don't see it being the top priority. So no. the kind of if companies really believed that diversity and inclusion was good for business, it would be an income generating strategy. And, I, and it doesn't sit there. I think it sits in a lot of companies as a really important second priority as a compliance priority, where there's rules in order to move things along. So we do see progress through that. But ultimately, I do think at some point, there will be one or two companies, and this is going to be really easy to see as well, because in most sectors you have, in all sectors, you have megastar companies who have the budget constraints in order to do this, who will make the choice and say, actually, we, we just want diversity. We just want 50-50 on the board. We just want 50-50 all the way through the organizations. Let's get out our money and make it happen. And we can do that because it's what the, it's what the customers want. And when there's pipeline problems, you can't do that at the sector level, but you can do it at the one company level. You mentioned something just now. It's what the customer wants. Do you feel like the C-suite and the boards are starting to see that, especially with social media now, and you can really hear the impact of what your company's doing? Is that sort of creating an influence? I think B2B. So I think, I think companies still maybe when you have individuals who are customers, their voices aren't as loud collectively because your customers are busy. So they're not banging on the door necessarily. I think business to business, we see this. So I think you okay. see all, all the time companies on their supply chain saying, actually, we want to see diversity. Really big venture capital firms saying, we're not even going to back a company unless there's diversity members of the founders. So we want to see that. In kind of deal teams, for example, where companies say, we're not even going to entertain you unless your deal team has diversity. So I think this, like, these kind of business to business interactions, we're seeing it a lot and we're seeing it have benefit. And I often say this to companies who complain to me about their pipeline problem. If they have a strong business to business component and are very influential, I just say, why don't you start pushing on your supply chain? 
If you're not going to have the conversation with your own employees, why not push in some other businesses and at least do some, be socially responsible through there and bring better business outcomes through there. And you do see that action. So for me, I think the B2B is alive. I still think the customer is moving with their feet, isn't necessarily there, particularly if the company is supplying something that's really low price. That makes sense. And then we've been seeing like what we would like to see in the future. So how do you both see this role of DEI evolving in the years? And like you said, it's come so far in, in 30 years. What does another maybe even just five to 10 look like? I think we continue to make slow but steady progress over the next five to 10 years. I think that there are, it, there's volatility in that. It comes and goes. If you look at the behavior of some of our politicians, it's, abhor it's abhorrent and that doesn't help it. But I think business is moving forward in spite of that. And I think that uh, unfortunately it just, it doesn't solve the problem in our, in my lifetime anyway. So if you thought that, why wouldn't we have gender diverse boards? Like we don't add because so there's obviously a natural impediment to people doing it because board boards pick boards. And so they could pick all women tomorrow if they wanted, or they, they could do 50, 50 tomorrow if they wanted, but they don't. So what is that? That's what I get at. And this is taking a long time. I always tell the story of there was a conference when they were looking at after the civil war in the United States, Susan B. Anthony and all of the famous equal rights advocates of that day, so 1870s, where they tried to have put into the constitution that, that the government could not make any laws on a bias against either gender, because they were putting that in for race at the same time, right? At, after the civil war into the constitution. And they tried to get it done and, it, and they couldn't get it done. They went ahead and did the one on no law could be made that'll prevent bias in the constitution, but not for gender discrimination. And it took another 60 years before women were given the right to vote. So these things take a tremendous amount of time. And so I don't lose hope. I get a little like, why is that happening tomorrow? But it, what we want to make sure it is continuously happening year after year. That's the journey I think we're on. For me, I'm interested in what are the macroeconomic shock and cycles that we have in front of us. Because if you look at women's progress in the labor market, we always think about these amazing women like Gloria Simon, for example, back in the 70s, really cheering for women. And her movement and the movement of other people who are around her got momentum from things like that the labor market was really hot, so they didn't need women to enter the labor market. So there was this really shortage of supply and technology shocks as well. That meant that there were many jobs that were open. So I guess the question then becomes, what's going to happen in the economy as we go forward? Will we have a growth cycle where, you know, some of the pushback for women in the labor market at the moment is because men feel that they don't have the same amount of shots as they did in the past. And I guess that is true a little bit because the pool has gotten wider. Women are now in the race, whereas they weren't allowed to be in the race before. But in periods of contraction, when the economy is going down and there's redundancies and there's cost cutting, it can feel that more, more is being taken away from them. So again, in periods of growth, a lot of the, that kind of push against the movement for gender equality goes away. So to add to what Richard said, I think we will see slow progress, but we might, if we get the right technological shift, if we get the right macroeconomic shift, get momentum like we did in the 70s that we haven't actually had in the 70s in developed countries and some developing countries have never had. So I guess it depends where you are in the world, how women are actually doing. So I'm optimistic, despite the fact that people are complaining that chat GPT is biased, I'm really optimistic that this war can just be a revolution. Given there's a push on soft skills, 
given there's a push on leadership skills, given there's a push on kind of creativity problem solving, when physical strength isn't needed, I'm optimistic that we might see more progress and get that momentum that we had in the 70s. I love that. I'm, and I really, I've been in working with pharma for the last decade. And I would at the very beginning when you'd go to see people speak, there'd be maybe one female CEO or GM. And I'm so excited because as I look now, before just off the top of my head that we were talking about just this week. And so I do see that shift in the last decade, which makes me really happy because as a woman who wants to climb the ladder, seeing that when you go to these conferences and women speaking is so exciting. So I think that it's great. And again, a lot of this is still, we can make differences and we can make changes. So what advice do you want to offer all of the members of HBA? And this is going to HBA Global when it comes to shaping the future of the industry. The best thing I learned in my career, but it took me 30 years to learn it, was to step back and ask myself, why do I think the way I think? Because initially you make a judgment, you go, obviously, here's what we should do. And if it relates to hiring a person, you don't like, why did you think that immediately? And the more you're able to step back and say, why did I think that? I don't know why I thought that. I thought that because... I was comfortable with that, but why should I be comfortable with that decision? So what I learned was to step back and think, why am I thinking that way? And actually it turned me, it made me into a better manager. I think. And I, what I try to encourage people is to get later in their career to really take stock of why they're just thinking what they're thinking and how, and maybe there's another way they could think, which would be better for the, for them and the organization. So that's, that'd be my I'm going to put that on my Slack channel, by the way, for my entire organization. I love that. <laughs> What about you, Grace? I think for me, I think it's really focusing on opportunities, visibility, and voice. So who, as you go about your day, regardless of where you are in the organization, do you give opportunities to, to be in your network? Do you give opportunities to, to allow them to grow? Do you give visibility to, so that they actually get seen? And who do you give voice to? Who, whose voice do you make way for in meetings? And I think of a lot of the outcomes that we think about, who gets hired, who gets promoted, who gets higher pay does come down to who had opportunities, who had visibility and who had voice. So the things that we worry about upstream can be traced back to opportunities, visibility and voice today. And I think whether you're at an entry level, whether you're mid-level or whether you're the most senior person, really auditing yourself and pushing yourself to go outside your affinity in distributing opportunities, visibility and voice is extraordinarily powerful. I think mm -hmm. for women who are listening, who really want to, like Christina, get to the end and get to the C-suite, really paying attention to, do I get opportunities? And are they the right opportunities? So that are they promotable? Do I get visibility and do I get voice? And if you don't, considering moving to get those, which I think really super important, getting stuck under a manager who isn't giving you opportunities, visibility and voice is something that derails careers and being with the right manager who gives you opportunities, visibility and voice is something that accelerates the careers. I might be a genius, but if I can't show it, then I'm never going to get promoted and I'm never going to get to the end of the line. So for me, I focus on opportunities, visibility and voice personally, and also for others. Yes, I love that opportunities, visibility and voice. And I think that's something I wish that I had asked myself a decade ago. I think it would have changed maybe even the direction because I think sometimes we get, we fall into the complacent. And I think that is a really great question to sit maybe after this podcast and really think about where that lies. If you have someone like Richard, an ally, a leader within your organization that you could go to start working on this, or it might just have to be maybe there, there's an opportunity to have that visibility voice elsewhere. So it's something great to sort of end and really have people think about. 
yeah, you know, a punchline could be Christina, no one's coming to thank you. You can take control of your own career and make sure that you get enough opportunities, visibility, and voice. Again, thank you so much, Richard Grace, for coming on the podcast. This has been monumental for me. I know that I've learned a lot. Happy International Women's Day to everyone listening, and thank you for listening. And let's all be part of the conversation, listeners. Make sure you follow HBA Canada on LinkedIn, Twitter, and as of today, on Instagram.